This is Hybrid Wars, a podcast looking at how violent conflict around the world is becoming more deadly and more difficult to resolve than ever before. I'm Adam Day from UN University's Center for Policy Research in New York. Last episode, we spoke to Erica Gaston on the changing nature of armed conflict and the rise of paramilitaries all over the world, looking particularly at Afghanistan and Iraq. Today, we're going to be talking about Nigeria and the battle against the terrorist insurgency Boko Haram. We're going to look at one of the untold stories in this fight, the community-based militias that emerged to defend themselves against Boko Haram, militias that began when the Nigerian army couldn't do the job on its own. Today, these paramilitary forces have become more than just fighters against Boko Haram. They are likely now permanent features on the Nigerian landscape. I spoke to Vanda Felbat-Brown, one of the foremost experts on Nigerian counterinsurgencies and the author of a brilliant report you can find on our website. I am Vanda Floba Brown, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., where I direct Brookings' work on subnational threats and transnational networks. She has gone to Nigeria dozens of times, often into highly insecure parts of the North, interviewing fighters on the front lines of the battle against Boko Haram. She said that in order to understand the paramilitary groups fighting Boko Haram, you need to first understand how the group emerged nearly 20 years ago. Uh, Boko Haram is a group that emerged uh, first as um, a, a mobilization teaching group in the early 2000s when it was um, led by a popular preacher, Muhammad Yusuf. Uh, and uh, Yusuf um, criticized the, uh, the corruption of the Nigerian elite, Nigerian state, the impoverishment of northeast Nigeria, including the, the state of Borno. Uh, as um, factors uh, that um, uh, stem from a wrong interpretation of religion. So his whole argument was northern Nigeria is so poor, people don't have jobs, there are no um, social services because the society is corrupt and the elite is corrupt. They are not um, subscribing to a true religion. And true religion, in his case, was not just any Islam, but an Islam that uh, went back to a Salafi traditional doctrine um, interpreting Islam as something close to uh, social life and preaching at the time of uh, Prophet Muhammad. And Yusuf became uh, very rapidly very popular because uh, the socioeconomic situation in northern Nigeria and, in fact, the broader Lake Chad region is indeed uh, dismal, is even dismal by Nigerian standards, uh, with uh, unemployment levels 70-80%, with uh, uh, women illiteracy in the same numbers, about 70-80%, very high um, mortality rates, uh, very poor access to education. Vanda told me that Yusuf's popularity was in part because he was seen as anti-corruption, offering people a more moral path. The name of the group means people committed to the propagation of the Prophet's teachings and jihad. So uh, the popular nickname for the group became Boko Haram, meaning uh, Western education is forbidden, although that's actually not the true name of the group, but it's the name that, uh, that everyone uses uh, to refer to the group. And so the idea was we go back to Islam as it was um, 
centuries ago, and that will purify the country and produce justice and uh, equality. Um, Yusuf was at first embraced by northern Nigerian politicians who tried to appropriate him and use him for their political purposes, for their uh, rivalries with each other and also competition with the capital Abuja and with the southern Christian states. But soon they came to consider him too dangerous an actor. And um, in fact, in 2009, uh, Yusuf was arrested and was murdered and died in the custody of the uh, police. The death of Yusuf in 2009 sent northern Nigeria into an extremely violent phase. Abu Bakr Shekau, Yusuf's replacement as head of Boko Haram, used extraordinarily brutal tactics against the populations of northern Nigeria, especially the Christian communities living there, but also the Muslim ones. He started the insurgency of Boko Haram that we know today, the kidnapped girls, the terrorized communities, the things you see on the news. Parents of kidnapped Ashibu girls have accused the Nigerian government of not doing enough to secure the release of their children after three years now. Easy, really. It's not easy, really. It affects my other kids. They are afraid of being taken away from school, whether they are in Shibuk or not. They say they are not feeling at home because they think maybe somebody will come and kidnap them from school anytime, any moment. Remarks were made at the third anniversary of Boko Haram terrorist abduction of nearly 300 schoolgirls. Parents also slammed a shocking and devastating unknown fate of their missing children. They once again called on Nigerian government to release details of negotiations with Boko Haram terrorist group, but Abuja says it's for now impossible for security reasons. And shockingly, the Nigerian military and Nigerian state were essentially incapable of stopping the insurgency, that they melted. You know, the Nigerian uh, state and government are notorious for corruptions, inefficiencies, rotten services, but the long assumption was that at least the military that often uh, took it upon itself to uh, rule the country through after coup d'etat would stand and, and uh, hold together. But they just melted in the face of Boko Haram. And Boko Haram would take over major cities, including the capital of Borno State, Maiduguri, really the, the biggest commercial hub in the entire uh, Lake Chad region. Boko Haram not only challenged the Nigerian military, it consistently showed itself able to take over and hold huge tracts of land. Over a 10-year period, it killed up to 30,000 people and displaced between 2 and 3 million. And the Nigerian government just wasn't able to stop them. Until essentially um, 2015, the Nigerian military, although itself being extraordinarily brutal in response to the insurgents, um, was not able to effectively counter uh, Boko Haram. And the local populations were left at the mercy, at the predation, at the brutality, killings, rapes of Boko Haram. Or they would face those same kind of abuses from the Nigerian military without the military being able to protect them. And so what started happening um, in 2012, 2013, is that local militias emerged in Nigeria, in northern Nigeria, to start fighting um, Boko Haram. In 2011, 2012, 2013, they emerged spontaneously because uh, entire communities and vast territories, even major cities like Maiduguri, were just deserted and abandoned by the military and the police who ran away or were killed by Boko Haram, who were simply not able to provide any kind of security. Lots of these militia groups popped up, some of them very small, 
others becoming linked across large territories. The most famous became the Civilian Joint Task Force, or CJTF, which is actually an umbrella brand for dozens of other groups across northern Nigeria. Other ones, like the Keshkesh Group, the so-called Hunters Organizations, and the Vigilante Group of Nigeria also emerged across the northern parts of the country, sometimes competing with the CJTF, sometimes collaborating with it. But the main group, the one we're going to focus on today, is the CJTF. This network of militias across northern Nigeria became crucial for the fight against Boko Haram. And for several years, it seemed to work. From 2015 to 2017, Boko Haram lost a lot of ground, and the government began announcing that the group was on the verge of being defeated. But things started going seriously wrong in uh, 2018. And in fact, today in 2019-2020, we are seeing significant uh, decline in deterioration of security. And where for a while, the insurgents, the militants were on the run, really for the past year and a half, it's the Nigerian military that has been on the run. Why is that? Why was the counterinsurgency unable to secure the north? Partially the challenge is from the original group, Boko Haram, but the most significant challenge is from a faction that split off from Boko Haram that is uh, referred to as the Islamic State West Africa province. And ISWAP, the abbreviation for the group, has really become um, a very potent uh, opponent that has put the Nigerian military into retreat. Now, the Nigerian military denies it. When my talk for the, uh, our study with Nigerian government officials, they would deny that there is any problem. They would even say uh, there is no ISWAP. That's just a mirage. It's just a Western propaganda, Western slander. In reality, ISWAP has been uh, uh, able to attack not just forward operating bases, but also major military bases of the Nigerian military in the north and defeat them and overrun them. This has put the Nigerian military on the back foot again. They have had to retreat from some of the territories they've gained, falling back into larger camps where they can more easily defend themselves against Iswap and Boko Haram. They are what Vanda calls a losing defensive mode. Now, one never wins any kind of insurgency or for the method, any kind of fight by being in the defensive mode. Uh, one has to be able to take offensive operation to the insurgents. That's essentially not happening. The Nigerian military continues to suffer from tremendous morale problems, tremendous um, uh, tactical, technological uh, deficiencies, huge logistical problems, and is just hunkered down in these super camps. But even and here, uh, the militias um, are um, a critical component of the operations. So not only is the Nigerian military really not taking any fight or very rarely taking any fight with the insurgents, it also constantly uses the militias like the CJTF for all uh, front operation. So uh, you take the super camp, the Nigerian military is in the core, you have civilians around, and the parameter is guarded by the CJTF. Any kind of patrol that takes place, CJTF is at the forefront, the militias are at the forefront. Essentially, the Nigerian military uses uh, the CJPF as the principal actor for all intelligence operations, all defensive operations, and all offensive operations. And it uses them essentially as cannon fodder. The measure was agreed to last year by the Civilian Joint Task Force, also known as the CJTF, a vigilante group set up in Borno State to combat Boko Haram jihadists. 
So where we are today is that the CJTF, groups that emerged to defend their own communities against the threats of Boko Haram and ISWAP, are now being used as frontline troops of the Nigerian military. We have no idea how many CJTF militants there are in the north. They say they have about 31,000, not counting the Vigilante Group of Nigeria or Keshkesh or the Hunters Association. But we do know that the Nigerian government sees them as indispensable to the fight, but without knowing how many there really are. And they are doing far more than just fighting Boko Haram and Iswap. Uh, they now have decided that they will uh, provide all kinds of uh, anti-crime activities. For example, they uh, claim to be chasing uh, robbers, petty muggers. They uh, claim to uh, be patrolling against the use of fake banknotes, a pervasive problem uh, in Nigeria. And uh, in fact, uh, increasingly, they are being uh, used by government authority to perform a variety of policing functions, such as raid and race uh, drug markets, um, uh, raid and uh, race areas of prostitution and slum areas where uh, the governors want to reclaim the land for uh, all kinds of purposes. Um, and in fact, sometimes be part of very extensive uh, counter-narcotics operations. So the CJTF has become far more than a military force. It is now a police, an anti-trafficking organization, an extension of the state, the Nigerian government, in all kinds of ways. Nonetheless, these militias like CJTF are not legal. There is no place for them in the Nigerian constitution. Uh, they are illegal uh, actors or at best extra legal. Uh, but the, the group doesn't legally exist. Uh, in, uh, there is um, also no formal command uh, for the group. The group is divided into different sectors of which there are about nine or 12. Um, and uh, each has its own separate commander that don't, that does not, who does not necessarily um, Listen to any other commander. Uh, the uh, the governor of Borno State uh, 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 has frequent interactions with the CJTF and other militia, and the attorney general of Borno State is um, the formal supervisor, the former chief. Now, you know this is ironic, uh, but also a very typical uh, Nigerian story. These groups are not legal. Yet the chief justice official of a state is the actor who is nominally in command of the militias. So because these groups aren't legal, they aren't formally eligible for any kind of support from the government. Some of them get paid by the governor, some don't. Some get weapons from the Nigerian army, others have to find their own guns. And even those who do get paid only get about $50 a month at the most. Even in Nigeria, that doesn't go very far. And currently, there is absolutely no appetite in the federal government um, or for the state government to legalize them for a whole variety of complex reasons, one of which is uh, how will they be paid. But because they are oftentimes not formally paid right now or paid very little, that also means that they resort to criminality, predation, and they arrogate to themselves um, all kinds of bad behavior, including the very behavior uh, against which they uh, claim to protect the population. But at the same time, they are deeply permeated and uh, 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 into all kinds of 
local illegal economies. They engage in extortion along roads. Uh, they might not be able to extort much because people don't have money, but they extort extensively along roads and set up checkpoints where every cabbie, every vehicle will need to pay them. They themselves are very deeply involved in the smuggling of tramadol. That's partially a function of the fact that uh, since 2016, they uh, have been asked to be the security providers in the IDP camps. The IDP camps host uh, thousands or tens of thousands of people in a particular location. And uh, the uh, CJTF is deployed as the only authority in those camps. That also privileges uh, them negatively, that also enables them negatively to uh, really become principal smugglers of tramadol uh, and opioid uh, painkiller to the camps. This is the double-edged sword of the CJTF. It's a brutal, unaccountable group of groups that can predate on the communities of northern Nigeria, but it's also seen as indispensable to the stability of the country. Not just security, but all kinds of other things that the Nigerian state can't or won't deliver. The national assistance community is really relying on the militias, the CJTF, to distribute food in camps. Uh, at various points, there was a lot of brutality uh, and racketeering associated with it, but it's still believed that the CJTF is less brutal and less engages in racketeering than the Nigerian military that used to do it. There have also been efforts to train the CJTF to be less abusive during food distribution or during distribution of uh, medicine. But in remote areas, in rural areas, their um, scope of activities really is much greater than simply um, providing security and providing order, functioning as de facto police. In those areas where local governing authorities were displaced by the insurgents and did not come back, they function as the judge, the court, uh, the local governor, um, essentially uh, uh, determine and arbitrate all kinds of uh, public life and also of private life. It appears that, that the majority of local people really want traditional authorities back and don't want to put up with the rule of uh, CJTF, that they often find it too unrestrained. But in areas where uh, traditional authorities are not available to come back or not willing to come back, then they are stuck with CJTF. Stuck with the CJTF. That seems to capture exactly the problem. Vanda's case study in Nigeria is subtitled, Not Going Away. And this seems like the crux of the issue. Whatever we think of the CJTF, whatever we think of its role in helping to defeat Boko Haram or in policing communities in northern Nigeria or its many human rights violations, it is an issue that is not going away. So then what can be done with groups like the CJTF? Of course, the issue of how to deal with militias is not unique to Nigeria. And in fact, it's part and parcel um, uh, uh, of efforts of how to deal with armed combatant when uh, conflict ends or at least significantly reduced. And so the standard and most desired response or uh, approach is to have uh, disarmament, demobilization and reintegration known as uh, DDR. DDR is applied to the militants frequently, but it also can apply to the militias. But although there is a desired approach, it is often like shoving um, the toothpaste back into the tube. It is enormously hard to do so. Many uh, 
actors, uh, uh, armed actors, do not want to demobilize. This is particularly true about militias that face the prospects of enormous unemployment, enormous uh, poverty, and enormous loss of power and uh, prestige and authority that being part of an armed militia gives them. So in Nigeria, there have been various proposals to explore uh, DDR for um, CJTF. None are uh, very robust uh, for a variety of reasons. One is that uh, the security situation continues to be dismal and in fact has deteriorated. So even advocates of DDR will say, well, now it's not the time to do it since uh, the Nigerian military is in retreat and a swap is uh, on, the, uh, on the move. It has momentum on its side. But critically, the militias themselves, CJTF, do not want to contemplate any kind of DDR and any kind of demobilization. They want to stay um, um, forever in the state that they are right now, except they want to be legalized. They want legal recognition and they want to have a permanent and much larger payroll that they have for all of their members than they are currently uh, enjoying. This is because what happens in one part of Nigeria doesn't stay there. Militias are very aware of how other groups are treated elsewhere in the country. When the government strikes a deal with one group, the terms of that deal are widely known. In some cases, groups have been given major benefits like scholarship money to go to Harvard. The CJTF, fighting on the front lines of the war against Boko Haram and losing soldiers every day, sees that and wonders when they will get benefits like that. Certainly not in a DDR program. There are small-scale DDR programs, and we might do a podcast about some of those because we have a research project there now. And some of the fighters have been reintegrated into jobs like farmers and tailors and other non-security work. But these programs are very unlikely to address the large numbers of people who've been fighting with the CJTF. So another option is to bring them into the army. Another category is one that says, well, the militias should be integrated into existing security forces. So if they cannot be disarmed, if they cannot get their own separate branch, separate service just created for them, then why not integrate them into existing security forces? Again, that's a standard approach. And uh, once again, it comes with all kinds of problems, downsides and difficulties. Many of the militias will not pass the minimum requirements to be a policeman or a soldier. They will not be literate. They might not be able to speak, um, not level, not uh, even Hausa Fulani, the, the, the Hausa being the language up north. They might speak just the Kanuri, uh, let alone uh, English. So they might not pass muster to join the Nigerian military police. But even if they were, Nigeria has a strict proportionate representation approach to these jobs based on ethnicity. Bringing 5,000 new CJTF members into the force would completely change that quota system. There is no appetite for this kind of major step in Nigeria today. And so what are uh, the people left with? What is the civil society, local populations and international partners left with? Well, in addition to the small-scale efforts to bring out at least few individuals, if not entire units, uh, the effort then is to at least uh, restrain their behavior uh, against the most egregious human rights abuses, the most egregious uh, uh, infiltration, uh, penetration into political processes, uh, against being used by politicians as... uh, 
uh, facts to obtain votes and money by teaching uh, human rights uh, standards uh, to the militia, sometimes conflict resolution disputes. Uh, essentially, it's the level uh, of interventions to, to mitigate their most uh, egregious misbehavior is where most efforts um, are currently focused on. One of Vanda's main recommendations is to stop the creation of new militias, period. That's because once they start, once that toothpaste has come out of the tube, it's not going back in. You know, the big takeaway from looking at uh, the cases uh, and, and the work that we did in limits of punishment, uh, as well as in um, hybrid conflict, hybrid peace on militias, is just don't start militias. Do whatever you can to avoid the issue. Work with international partners to help you with international military assistance. That comes with tremendous bag of problems. I am fully aware of that. But once the militia... Uh, Pandora box is open. It is very, very difficult to uh, deal with and constrain. So uh, my um, uh, big punchline is just avoid militias. Obviously, Vanna knows this is easier said than done. She's witnessed firsthand how entrenched Nigeria's militias are in the fabric of this country. And that is in part because the Nigerian state isn't able to step in where it's needed. Venda's deeper point is that if you're going to avoid militias, you have to ask some very difficult questions about corruption, elite interests, and the kinds of socioeconomic inequalities that make Boko Haram possible and the CJTF necessary. At the same time, what strikes me about places like Nigeria, or for the matter of Somalia or Afghanistan, that the persistent dysfunction of the state is enormously lasting. So it's almost amazing to see how much the, the, the system of, of dysfunction um, become entrenched and go on, that the implosion, total implosion doesn't happen. And the system emerges where there is a sort of perverse suboptimal equilibrium between the state, secu- the militants, the security actors, um, criminality. It's not just that they all have a stake in the informal or illegal economy. It, it's really much deeper than that. That there is just persistence of a morass out of which the the country or the locality does not get somehow unhinged. Um, oh, and then the, the, this persistence, this this fermenting, uh, this slow boil goes on and on and on. And then every so often it erupts into something dramatic, like the emergence of Boko Haram, like the emergence of uh, of Islam. And, uh, you know, much of attention in the West has been on, on Boko Haram. I really, and that's uh, also where the Nigerian military um, focuses to the extent that they admit that there is any kind of issue. But I find that um, Iswap is really the far more insidious, far more difficult threat uh, because they are able to calibrate violence with service provision because they often perform much better than the Nigerian state in providing um, the most meager resources to local populations, but nonetheless providing them. They're both very effective on the battlefield, but they also have great political capital and political entrenchment. And so it is their entrenchment that now competes with the entrenchments of the dysfunction uh, that uh, uh, takes place. 
and, and this sort of leads me to a broad reflection of uh, what I think has emerged really as a defining characteristics of the so-called endless war, of the insurgencies that we are seeing over the past 20 years, whether it's uh, the Taliban, the various mutated insurgencies in Iraq, um, Colombia, I would include um, in that picture as well, although that's the most um, optimistic, the happiest uh, out of all the stories. Certainly Somalia, certainly Nigeria. Uh, in all those places, uh, military uh, successes in pushing back the militants or, or reversing political order quite rapidly grind to... Um, just being stuck in the mud, being stuck in the systems of dysfunction where the battlefield is undermined, eviscerated, hampered, and locked in by the political governance dysfunction that takes place elsewhere. And uh, the international community uh, puts a lot of, lots of effort and has a lot of knowledge on how to build better militaries. There's entire enormous machinery about uh, security sector reform, uh, training of um, armies and militaries. Um, there are similar, less successful, but similar programs for um, uh, police. There is also a very elaborate machinery around DDR uh, that we talked about. But the crux of the problem is just the inability to persuade local and national elites to put uh, their very narrow parochial, often corrupt uh, interest um, uh, below the need to start governing better. And that's a Gordian knot that we just have not been able to crack in any of these contexts of how to get the state to start performing just a little bit better so that uh, horrible entities like Shabab uh, or uh, Boko Haram or Iswap are actually not seen as more tolerable alternative uh, than the state and the official political system. This has been an episode of Hybrid Wars, a podcast that gets you inside some of the world's toughest conflicts. Today, we've taken a look at Nigeria's counterinsurgency, the coalition of forces that emerged to fight the brutal reign of Boko Haram, the forces that are now very unlikely to disband or disappear. Nigeria is not an exception. In the coming episodes, we'll see how counterinsurgencies in Somalia and Iraq are facing many of the same issues, and we'll also explore some of the after effects of these wars. Visit us again to have another look inside today's hybrid wars. And if you have any comments on this episode or suggestions for future segments, please feel free to email us at hybridwars at unu.edu. That's hybridwars at unu.edu. Thanks very much for listening. This is a United Nations University Center for Policy Research podcast recording. The views expressed are those of the speakers.